0: It was a great last line in the Bible reading, wasn't it? From then on, nobody dared ask him any more questions. Well, of course, our God is open to us asking questions. That's part of the nature of God, and this uh, sermon series that we're, we're starting today, which goes through till the Christmas period, is, is looking at the nature and the character of God. I said, I said to Graham the other week, Graham, remind me again, what is the title of the series? And he said, oh, it's the Names of God or something like that. So uh, <laughs> today… Uh, The thing should come on the screen for us here. We're we're looking at the Trinity. We're looking at the business of our God being uh, three in one. Uh, Next week... Uh, Sue will talk about God the Father the following week, Graham, about Jesus the Son and then Arlene, uh, God the Holy Spirit. so I-, I need to say at the very start i, I can 't be exhaustive in talking about the nature of God three in one in, in one talk, but I hope what I do today won 't exhaust you because we 've just been hearing that we should love the Lord our God with our minds as well as with our soul and all of that sort of stuff so we might have to stretch our minds a a little bit today, and I hope you bear with me on that as we look at this very, very important subject. Why are we looking at the names of God? Why today particularly are we looking at the Trinity? Here, Here is what I think we're trying to do. We're trying to be equipped to understand God better. That can't be bad. To distinguish between biblical truth about God and false teaching, that is vitally important. And probably most importantly, as we explore the names given to God, something of his character and his nature, we will be better inspired in worship and in mission. In some ways, we could argue Graham knew what he was doing going on holiday this week and giving me the most complicated topic of all, God is three in one, Because uh, as I have sort of looked at this particular topic, uh, specifically for today, I found references on the internet to people saying, uh, this is the worst possible topic you can ever ask a preacher to preach on. Uh, and people would run a mile rather than uh, do it. But, but we're here, and it's a great topic. It's the biggest possible topic that there is. The Trinity, God is three in one. The theological formula, which has separated biblical Christianity from false teaching over nearly 2,000 years, it's called the Trinity. And it's important that we know something about why we believe this and what it actually says. We believe that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, some months ago, I'm not sure what I was talking about on the day, well, what what the topic was on the day, but I did put this diagram on the screen when we were talking somehow about truth or Christian teaching, and I said one of the non-negotiables for us was the understanding that God is one, existing in three persons. And and this diagram is not a new diagram, it goes back into antiquity, uh, and it's expresses things like this, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but somehow the Father is not the Son, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father. It's a sort of, Well, it's a triangle, but it's a sort of circular sort of argument there that helps us understand something which has been revealed to us about the person of God through the pages of the Bible and which Christians throughout the Christian era of the last 2,000 years have understood together, declared together, believed together, and sought to live out together. But in a sense, we're getting ahead of ourselves All of us would know this, the early Christians were Jews. I I remember in childhood, uh, we we were at a family Christmas party and and my aunt had some friends who were there, and uh, the the lady of the couple who was there, who uh, was vaguely related to me on the opposite side of the family, uh, knew my dad was a leader in the church, said to him, Arthur, did you know Jesus was Jewish? As if she suddenly just found this out and was actually quite shocked at this revelation. But the early Christians were Jews. Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew, and the clear distinction between Jewish religion and all other religions of the day was this, Judaism is monotheistic, mono-one, mono-rail, one rail, -rail. mono-brow, joined up in the middle. theism to do with God. Monotheism, the belief in one God. And much of the story of the Old Testament is the struggle of the people of Israel to hold to this truth, because it seemed an attractive proposition to hedge your bets by acknowledging a range of gods, gods who had different functions. Oh, here's a God that will bring the rain. Here's a God that will help the crops grow. Here's a God that will heal me when I'm sick. Here's a God that will help me get pregnant. Seemed an attractive proposition, but over and over again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush, expresses his displeasure at what he sees as spiritual adultery. Pick and mix religion much as many in the Western world would practice today, does not cut it with the Creator God because He will not share His glory with another. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, we read part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, we've sort of made jealousy a a negative thing, but God says he's a jealous God. He actually cares about how people relate to him, and he knows he is number one. And in the passage read for us today by Tina, Jesus speaks of the commandments. Mark chapter 12, in conversation with this uh, person, Jesus says the most important commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Jews call that the Shema, and they repeat it often. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus of Nazareth, a first century Jew, believed and confirmed that God is one. And yet here's the thing. Christians who bear the name of Jesus Christ seemingly, apparently, contradict this with the teaching on the Trinity. Whatever happened? How do we get where we are today? Well, just in case you didn't know, you will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. Do we then, as members of the cults, would accuse us, worship three gods? Have we somewhere along the line ceased to be monotheists? Uh, Alpha Course is starting in our church this month, and Nicky Gumbel, who uh, runs the Alpha Course and wrote the course and the book and all of that sort of thing, wrote a follow-up book to the Alpha Course called Searching Issues, in which he addresses a number of questions that people raise about Christian faith. And one of his chapters is very provocative. It says, is the Trinity unbiblical, unbelievable, and irrelevant? And, And some of those issues we'll start to grapple with today and understand why the Trinity is not unbiblical, why it needs to be believed, and why it's actually relevant to daily living for us today. Now, as Christians, we would claim like Jesus to be monotheist, believing in one God. The Trinity does not deny that. The Trinity draws on biblical evidence which leads to the conclusion that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, in the same way that the God who revealed himself uniquely to the Jews is God. And the concept, therefore, is God in three persons. One God, three persons. And as the first Christians, many of them, but not all of them, monotheistic Jews, came to recognize first Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit as divine persons, the Trinity became the inescapable conclusion, an inference drawn from evidence, the reconciliation of apparently irreconcilable pieces of information. Well, that's a great declaration, but what is the evidence? And briefly... Relatively briefly, we can look at the evidence this morning. I guess we have the least problem recognizing God the Father as God. Although in the Old Testament He was occasionally referred to in a general sense as the Father of Creation or the Father of Israel or in one of the Psalms as the Father of the Fatherless, it's actually Jesus who personalizes the idea of his father. He prayed to him as father using the intimate title Abba. He taught his disciples, and that includes us to pray, our father to acknowledge that just as a human father gives good gifts to his children, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I don't think we need to go much further in relation to the one that we often refer to simply as God or god The Father, because that doesn't seem to be in dispute. But what causes us as Christians to recognize that Jesus is a divine person, that Jesus is God? And I've got three sets of evidence one, his own claims. Two, Heaven's affirmation when God confirms his relationship with Jesus in a voice from heaven. And thirdly, the apostolic declaration, the biblical writers assuming and arguing for the divine nature of Jesus. First of all, Jesus made claims for himself. Even at the age of 12, Jesus acknowledged a unique relationship with God. When he got lost or He didn't get lost. Mary and Joseph lost him, which is a terrible thing to do, to lose Jesus. They lost him when they went to the temple, and they found him, and Jesus said, 12 year old boy, didn't you know I've got to be about my father's business? Jesus consistently used the title, I am, which was the title God used to identify himself to Moses at the burning bush. He did this, for example, in the I am sayings of John's gospel, I am the bread of life, and so on. These could be ambiguous, just simply the verb to be. I am a man. I am John Smith. I am a husband. But there was a time when Jesus declared to a group of hostile Jews before Abraham was, I am They were in no doubt that they thought he was blaspheming, taking upon himself the name of God, and they want to stone him. And of course, he would not be blaspheming if, in fact, he was God. And in John's gospel, Jesus claims a special relationship with his father. When Philip, one of the disciples, asks Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus replies, Anyone who has seen the Father, seen me, has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. And Jesus didn't contradict Thomas. When Thomas doubted that Jesus was risen from the dead, and when Jesus came back into the upper room, the risen Jesus, when Thomas was there, Thomas saw the holes in Jesus' hands and feet and side. Thomas worships him and says, My Lord and my God. And there are other occasions when we hear the disciples worship Jesus, and we could go on. Second set of evidence, God confirmed his relationship with Jesus at his baptism and at the event we know as the transfiguration. So at the baptism, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. But the transfiguration, this is my son, Whom I love, this is my chosen one. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And of course, the greatest confirmation of Jesus' identity was his resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus made all of these claims for himself and God confirmed that those claims were true when God raised him from the dead in the resurrection. Confirmation that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Third set of evidence for the divinity of Jesus, the biblical writers assumed and argued for his divine nature. Think back to the nativity story. Stories of shepherds and wise men worshipping the newborn Jesus. Worshipping. John's gospel rife with clues. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Who is the Word? John 1.14 makes that clear for us. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. He's in creation. He's the creator of the universe. John 3, 16, well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is great stuff. Paul, writing on Colossians, categorically speaks of the status of Jesus. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, when the Son, Jesus, is described as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created. We've been there already in terms of Jesus being the creator. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's actively involved in what's going on in our universe today. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that everything, he might have the supremacy. And here is the key verse, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. When Paul writes to the Philippians, that song that Emily sang to us was so powerful and so moving earlier on, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. I've got a little bit of uh, doubt as to what the name is. We assume the name is Jesus, but actually I wonder if the name is Lord In the Old Testament, if we read the Old Testament and we see the letters L-O-R-D written in capital letters, that refers to the name of God, the unspeakable name of God. That's the name which is above every other name. And here in Philippians it says that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whichever it is, the name of Jesus or the name of Lord, he is number one. He is the one who deserves the highest place. And the unidentified writer to the Hebrews says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word. You can't get much clearer than that. And then after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus sits on a throne in heaven and is worshipped. Read those early chapters of the book of Revelation. See how Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's now taken away the sin of the world, sits on a throne and is worshipped. Jesus is God. But we're not binitarians. We're trinitarians. So what about the Holy Spirit? We talk about God, the Holy Spirit, and I find direct evidence in two scriptures. The first in John's Gospel, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure by death. And Jesus says, when I go away, it's going to be all right. I will ask the Father, and he will give you Another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. And the argument hangs on the word another. The Greek language has two words translated another in English. One simply means an alternative. You know, you get your groceries online and the packer uses discretion to send an alternative for the product unavailable. It may be completely different to what you ordered. It may be of no use to you. But the other word, the word used here in John's gospel means another, exactly like me. So Jesus said, I'll ask the Father, he'll send you another one exactly the same kind as me. In other words, a divine person. But if you struggle with the linguistics, the linguistic gymnastics there, you can't struggle with Acts 5, 3 to 5. That terrible story of Ananias and Sapphira who told lies and lost their lives immediately, each of them, when Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then later in the passage, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. In other words, lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to God are the same thing. Incidentally, it's worth noting that the Holy Spirit did not come into existence at Pentecost, for in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. I want to share one more category of evidence for the biblical understanding of the Trinity, and that is the use of the three persons together. The first is so familiar to us. Because we greet one another with these words most Sunday mornings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or more directly, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name singular of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And after 300 years of confusion and mistaken emphases, church leaders came together in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea and affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's been the hallmark of authentic Christianity ever since. It distinguishes authentic Orthodox Christianity from non Trinitarian groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christadelphians, Unitarians and others who reject the Trinity in defense of monotheism, but in the process deny the divinity of the Son and the Spirit, and some deny the personhood of the Spirit, regarding him as an it an impersonal force like electricity. This is a great subject. It's a deep subject, it's an important subject, but sometimes we can be too quick to try and explain it with illustrations. Most famous illustration possibly was St. Patrick, who, when evangelizing in Ireland, is said to have picked up a shamrock leaf and used the three leaves of the shamrock leaf as an illustration of the Trinity. It is an inadequate analogy of the Trinity, the Trinity. Because those leaves don't have separate functions, the parts of the leaves. They don't have separate existence and identity. As a teenager, I remember a preacher likening the Trinity to three-in-one oil. That is just ridiculous. Other well-worn illustrations over the years have been water, ice, and steam. There's Somebody's done it. God is three-in-one. Water, H2O, exists as water, ice, and steam. Three modes of H2O. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not just modes of the same person, as if God were some cosmic shapeshifter. Husband, Father, Son, three relationships, but the Trinity speaks of three persons. Many of us are familiar with The Shack, the book, and then more recently the movie, and The Shack makes a bold attempt to express the Trinity. More so in the book than in the film. And it is worth reading the relevant section in the book, The Shack. But remember, The Shack is a work of fiction. It is not the Bible. So we struggle whenever we try to find illustrations to explain or illustrate the Trinity. But we move on to what is most important as we draw towards the close of this talk this morning Nikki Gumbel in Searching Issues questioned the relevance of the Trinity so what is its relevance why does it matter firstly it must matter because it's true and truth I believe is important but it speaks about prayer it speaks about worship and it speaks about relationships Jesus said when you pray say our Father he also says when you ask in his name, your prayer will be effective. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us form words in prayer even when we do not know what to say. So it could be expressed like this. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name in the power of the Holy Spirit. Personally speaking, my default prayer language, if I stop and listen to myself, is to address my heavenly Father and to conclude in Jesus' name. Does this mean it's wrong to address our prayers to Jesus? Not at all. But if we address our prayer to Jesus, it seems strange or a little awkward to conclude, in your name, because that's what we use when we're praying to God the Father. Can we address the Holy Spirit in prayer if we believe he's God? So why not? For years I was in churches where at communion uh, different deacons each week would one would say thank you for bread and one would say thank you for wine. And I would be a rich man if I had five pounds for every time I had heard the deacon praying at communion and thanking God the Father for dying on the cross for him. I understand why people in the moment get caught up in that and do that. But if we think about the Trinity as three persons... God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Holy Spirit did not die on the cross. Jesus the Son died on the cross. What about worship? How does the doctrine of the Trinity help us in worship? Worship when we come together. The old hymn, Holy, 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 celebrates God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The formula of the Trinity expresses a mystery concerning a great God who we'll never fully understand. So to worship the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reminds us of his awesome majesty. Jesus spoke of a time when true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in Truth. And many of our worship songs, traditional and contemporary, pick this theme up. Father God, I wonder. You're a good, good father. And yet I'm conscious most of our contemporary worship songs has indeed today focus on Jesus. And I just want to consider an issue which I believe has been an issue for some: the emphasis that we put on Jesus in our worship. Does Father God have a problem with us worshiping Jesus? I don't think so. I believe every time someone lifts up the name of Jesus, I suspect God the Father, a little like the bulldog in Tom and Jerry cartoons, says, that's my boy. And God gets a tremendous kick and a thrill when he sees people honoring and worshiping his son, Jesus. Let me tell you a story. My dad was well-known as a preacher among the independent Methodist churches, which are largely in Lancashire and uh, also the Northeast. As a student, I spent a lot of time as excursion leader at a Christian holiday center on the edge of the Lake District. And whenever I discovered that one of the guests was an independent Methodist, I would inevitably say, do you know Arthur Smith? And when they acknowledged they did, I proudly responded, he's my dad. But there came a time when I became well known as a Christian leader among Scottish Baptists, and then more widely through Evangelical Alliance, and the emphasis shifted and was reversed. So when I was guest speaker at the annual conference of the Independent Methodists, my dad sat proudly in the gathering, that's my boy. There was one embarrassing moment he recalled to me, but he wasn't embarrassed. My dad was visiting the gents at the Keswick Convention, and one of the speakers emerged from a cubicle, and my dad introduced himself as John Smith's dad. I don't know what happened about hand-washing, and my dad was the head of the public health laboratory in Liverpool, so I guess he got it sussed, or in the excitement of the moment, he got it wrong. But can you see the point I'm making? The Father's happiness at our worship of Jesus, despite embarrassing moments along the way, because sometimes we do get it wrong, like my dad at the Keswick Convention. When we worship his son, the father's happiness knows no bounds. The third aspect. Is to do with relationships. And when early there in the doctrine of the Trinity, we understand that one God has existed throughout eternity as three persons. Three persons in perfect relationship, one with the other. So there's no jealousy in that relationship. There is only mutual support and encouragement. And that provides a model for us. In fact, Jesus prays to his Father in John 17, that we who have come to believe in his name may be one as he and his father are one. What's the implication? What's the practical relevance for us today? No jealousy of one another, love for one another, mutual support, one for the other. And you know as well as I do. Church history, even recent church history, even contemporary church history, does not suggest we have yet got this right. But the good news is this. The third person in the Trinity, and when we say first person, second person, third person, we are not talking hierarchy. The good news is this. The third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, facilitates this unity. It's this spirit indwelling each Christian who makes unity and relationship possible. Many of us have sung the kids' song, our God is a great big God. Fundamentally, the Trinity is an expression of the bigness of God. For if we would understand him fully, he would not be God. In the 5th century, there was a creed, a statement of belief, written which has become known as the Athanasian Creed after a man called Athanasius, who apparently had nothing whatsoever to do with that creed being written. But the Athanasian Creed uses the word incomprehensible to describe God. I just want to say we should not shy clear of believing what we cannot understand if what we believe has been revealed in Scripture. Instead, we should be caught up in wonder at the mystery and the majesty of what Christians have believed from the beginning. Our God is a great big God. And I've asked Emily, as we close right now, can we just express our belief in the Trinity, one God, three persons, as we sing together, we believe in God the Father.